If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 650. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You already heard about that, but purchasing a class or 20 there helps keep this podcast free of charge. Also, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the super thanks button under the video. You can support the video or the show that way. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally, and send me those show requests. I do appreciate seeing what you want to here and what you want me to talk about. So let's get into the topic of the day. This is not a listener-generated episode, but it is does come from a colleague, and it was a book review that they recommended on a new book about Thomas Jefferson. Now, I've not read the book on Jefferson, on, or this particular book on Jefferson, so I'm not going to comment on the book itself. But I do want to read the review because there are a couple of things in here that I think are uh, troubling for the modern historical profession. Now, this individual wrote this review is a good guy, and uh, I think that, um, but but it shows where we are in the profession with some things that are just taken as uh, fact that aren't necessarily fact, and it also shows some things about Thomas Jefferson. Look, Thomas Jefferson is one of the most perplexing individuals in American history. He can be something to everybody. You know, for in the in the 20th century, Thomas Jefferson was the man that the left loved. He was the man of the progressives. I mean, there's a reason why the Jefferson Memorial was put there during Roosevelt's administration. Now, part of that was because Southerners, who were a big part of the uh, of the administration, and of course Roosevelt's uh, supporters, believed that uh, they needed a something with the South in Washington D.C. There was Lincoln, and so. Why not Thomas Jefferson? And Jefferson, of course, was to so many progressives an important part of their ideology. He is the guy that wrote the Declaration. He, uh, of course, was seen as someone who believed in equality, someone who believed in economic egalitarianism in some ways, a man of the people. And so you have that perception of Thomas Jefferson, which is just, I think, completely false. One of the things you get, one of the problems that we have with Jefferson is historical interpretation of Jefferson has reached a point where you have to have books about talking about historical interpretation. Because Jefferson, along with Lincoln and, of course, Washington and a few others, has had dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books written about them. And Jefferson's letters, of course, if you go through them, you can, you can find all kinds of things that Jefferson said. I mean, he was a man who just simply wrote down his thoughts, and then people have taken that, even in these intellectual exercises, as gospel from Jefferson. This is what he really thought about these things, when it could be just a simple intellectual exercise. We know what Jefferson thought about things by his actions. 
And I think that's where there's a, a biography, of course, on Jefferson, a political biography, essentially, by Kevin Goodsman, Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, where I think Goodsman looks more at Jefferson's actions than his words. And I, and I think that is one of the best parts of the entire book. Also, of course, the first chapter where he says, look, Jefferson's entire political worldview was driven by federalism. Um, and this is something I've said about Jefferson. Jefferson could be a reformer. Jefferson could be a radical. Jefferson could be all kinds of things to all kinds of people. But at the end of the day, Jefferson was a committed federalist. And what I mean by that is Jefferson was committed to this principle of state powers and a decentralized federal republic. He didn't mind Massachusetts being Massachusetts. In fact, even if you look at his letter to the Danbury Baptist, which people often run around saying, well, here it is. Jefferson said that you know, separation of church and state. In that particular letter, he makes it very clear. The Baptists wrote him, and uh, they said, you know, they were complaining about the situation in Connecticut and that there was no separation of church and state there, that, um, you know, they were being persecuted. And Jefferson's response was, well, yeah, this is a good thing, but really we can't do anything about it unless you do something for yourself there in Connecticut. Hopefully one day people will realize this and they'll, and they'll have it in their own states. But see, Jefferson wasn't going to say, you know what we need to do? We need to have some type of federal law. We need to have some type of federal uh, or national uh, law on this particular issue. He didn't do that. And he didn't do that because he didn't believe in those things. Now, Jefferson could be duplicitous. And you can get a good sense of what Jefferson was as a person from two different things. And I've said this before. One, of course, is Alexander Hamilton. What did Hamilton really think about Jefferson? And you get a good sense of what Hamilton thought about Jefferson during the 1800 election. Of course, we know in the 1800 election, uh, Jefferson and Aaron Burr tied for the presidency. And Hamilton went on a full court press to try to ensure that Thomas Jefferson won over Aaron Burr. And he had to do this by persuading reluctant Federalists that Jefferson was the better choice. Now, a lot of Federalists just hated Jefferson so much they wanted to stick it to him and they wanted to give the presidency to Burr. Hamilton's uh, efforts centered on one particular thing. Jefferson was a known quantity. And Jefferson was not going to go out of his way to destroy everything that the Federalists did in power. He would... He would he would trim it, no doubt about it, and he was going to. But because he was a known quantity, and he Hamilton preferred Jefferson over Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was a loose cannon. Aaron Burr was a renegade. Jefferson was not that. This shows, in some ways, the very conservative nature of Thomas Jefferson. If you look at the Declaration, and while it has this lofty language, and I'll talk about that in a minute with this review, it has this lofty language. The structure of the Declaration is very conservative. And what I mean by that, it's almost a copy of the English Bill of Rights. If you look at the structure of the English Bill of Rights, it's an indictment of the king and then an assertion of certain rights. And so the Declaration is simply just that. It's an it's a indictment of the king and, of course, of parliament. No assertion of rights but simply saying we as states have the ability to declare independence and be independent states just as the state of Great Britain. That's the most important part of that, of that declaration, by the way, is the last paragraph. But this is important to understand. Jefferson as a conservative, Jefferson as a man who was tied in 
to the ancient constitution, so the ancient order of his people and society. Now, again, he could advocate reform, and no one in Virginia would say that Jefferson was a conservative. He was a conservative in the American mold when it came to federalism, but he was also a man of the South. Certainly, he dabbled with Enlightenment theory. Certainly, he, uh, he was someone who uh, was at least suspicious of organized Christianity, and this, this uh, review gets into that a little bit. But Jefferson really was a man of his people. I mean, he was one of the largest slave owners in Virginia. As Goodsman points out in his book on Jefferson, on race, Jefferson held views on race that were pretty much in line with what everybody else in Virginia thought at the time. This is where you get into this idea of all men are created equal. Jefferson never really believed that. And when you think about what he was saying there, if you look at some of the other quotations that he, or some of the other things he said about equality and the state of nature and all of these things, Jefferson didn't believe that everyone was suited for freedom. He never did. And um, I think that's an important part to understand, even when, it looks, when you look at education reform. Jefferson certainly believed that, some, that, that everyone should have access to an elementary education, but he did believe in an elite. And once you got to a certain point, he wanted to cut that funding and take those other people on, but only, you only got a rudimentary education if you weren't one of the advanced elite intellects of society. So his egalitarianism had limits to it. And certainly Jefferson, as Gutzman points out, when it came to Illinois, Jefferson had an opportunity in uh, the 18-teens when Illinois was uh, going through the process of statehood. And there was some discussion about Illinois becoming a slave state. Jefferson had the opportunity to make some pretty strong statements, anti-slavery statements then, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it at all. Um, this is Jefferson, the, the realist, in his own time. This is where he said things like, they have the wolf by the ears and they cannot let him go. And this is after the Haitian uh, rebellion, which, I'll, again, this piece gets into, and I'll talk about that. But there's a reason why. Jefferson didn't think that slavery could end peacefully, in anywhere in the Americas, that it had to have, there had to be something else that would happen. You couldn't just let it go because <clears throat> you would have Haiti. You would have Haiti, and uh, he didn't. He didn't want that. He was looking around and seeing what could potentially happen, surveying the scene in the Americas, and he didn't want that kind of violent bloodshed. So he wasn't certain that blacks uh, in society were equal to whites intellectually, and any kind of evidence that was ever presented to him that that could be the case. He scoffed at it, just poo-pooed it. No, no, that's not true. No, that, that, that's not true. I, I don't believe that. So there's a lot of things going on here with Thomas Jefferson. That Je There's Jefferson in action, and then Jefferson as the man who would uh, you know, put down his thoughts on paper and, and talk about all kinds of things. Right. So the book talks about Jefferson as hypocrite. I'm not so certain he was a hypocrite and that he was simply just someone who liked to discuss ideas. In his own life, he was always a planter who was worried about New England influence on the South. This is why he founded the University of Virginia, to avoid the dark Federalist mills of the North. He was concerned about uh, his own society, and I think more than anything else, that's what drove Jefferson's life. So let's get into this review uh, this is by Daniel Galata, who I said is a good guy. Uh, he has the Age of Jackson podcast, and this was recommended by Aaron Coleman, uh, Nathan Coleman, someone who I also liked, wrote, wrote a really good book about the Anti-Federalist. But the review stars, Thomas Jefferson continues to inspire and divide Americans. 
even though he still ranks in the top 10 in C-SPAN's Presidential Histor Historian Survey, recent years have witnessed Jefferson's name and image removed from schools, libraries, and the halls of government. Jefferson's statue at his own University of Virginia served as a rallying point for white supremacists during the summer of 2017. All the while, David Diggs' flamboyant portrayal of him in the musical Hamilton was winning acclaim on Broadway. Much of the controversy stems from Jefferson's dual identity as the author of the Declaration of Independence and his status as one of the nation's most, most prominent slave owners. And I think this is where people really are conflicted about Jefferson. And that's because they don't understand what the Declaration really was. Jefferson himself said it was an expression of the American mind. Um, his commitment to it was circumspect at best. And we know that many people in America didn't necessarily believe it. And of course, Gulata gets into some of this later on, where some people did. They started running with it. But Jefferson always wanted to pull back the reins on that. I don't think he really saw those lines in the Declaration as being what other people said they were. And we know, you know John Taylor of Caroline, in the early 1800s, writing an orator, was saying, hey, look here, wait a second here. Um, yeah, no, we don't really believe in this, this equality stuff. I mean, maybe, and there were some people that said, you know, maybe uh, we, we kind of drank the Kool-Aid for a couple of years. But after that, I mean, it was over. We didn't really believe these things that were being said. And But other people, particularly abolitionists, ran with this stuff. And that created the proposition nation myth. So when you look at modern American conservatism, what they try to do, and they, they bridge this off of Lincoln, and, and Galata brings up Lincoln at one point, you trace Lincoln and using the Declaration back to the abolitionists, and that somehow becomes American conservatism, and it never was. It was never recognized as that. One of the men who, of course, is often considered to be, if, you, if you're a nationalist conservative, and I'll get into some of that in a, in a future podcast, but uh, John Adams was one of the uh, nicest examples of American conservatives. Now, again, I could quibble with some of this, but Adams himself wrote a pro-slavery constitution for Massachusetts that was rejected. And the constitution that, they, that was finally ratified in Massachusetts didn't make slavery illegal. That was a court decision to do it, not the constitution itself. So, And then there's this line, which is one of the... I, just, I have a problem with this for so many reasons, and I'll, say it in, and I'll tell you why in a second. He says, add to this unsettling reality that Jefferson fathered at least six children with an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. And it's little wonder why that many Americans find themselves wondering how such a man could have penned the words, all men are created equal. Now, just to say that as a definitive fact is not to be a very good historian. Because the evidence, the, if you just want to say, look, we're going to go with this, we're going to follow the science here. So we, we're going to follow the science. The only person that has ever been shown to have any Jefferson DNA was Eston Hemings. And that was a male in Jefferson's, you know, male Jefferson, right? So you, it's a monumental leap to go from that to Jefferson fathered six children with Sally Hemings. And this is taken just as fact. It's not fact at all. This is complete garbage to say something like this. It's not being very responsible. You could say there are accusations that Jefferson fathered children with Sally Hemings, but not as fact. The unsettling reality? No, there's no reality here. In fact, it was the, the, the evidence is more on the other side 
than on Jefferson doing this. Just because it's a male in the Jefferson family doesn't mean Jefferson himself did that, fathered anyone with Sally Hemings. In fact, um, one thing I'll tell you is the, the Abbeville Institute will be putting out a, a, a video on this uh, in a couple of weeks on this particular topic, Again, a short video about the Jefferson Hemings myth because it's just not conclusive. It's possible. Sure, it's possible. You can. I have said that. When I wrote my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, I talked about this, and I said it is possible. Anything is possible here. The whispers were there. Jefferson denied it. His overseer denied it. He said, no, it wasn't Jefferson. It was and it left it blank. It was this guy, right? But it wasn't Jefferson. He denied it. Um, Jefferson didn't, and, and, and again, there's some other things that just don't link up here. So to say this is an unsettling reality, the reality is that's a bad statement. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's irresponsible as a historian to do that. You could say, again, you could say that it's possible. Add to this the unsettling possibility that Jefferson fathered at least six children with an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, the possibility, but not the reality. There's no reality here at all. With the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution looming, it is difficult to predict if and how Jefferson's name will be invoked. I don't think it's going to be. I think that Jefferson is going to be pushed aside in this. Um, now, the neocons are going to run around with it, but I think the left are, have firmly decided that uh, they're going to they're gonna use 1619 as the basis of what they're going to do with that event. And it's going to be uh, something different, right? It's not going to be 1976 where you had, you know, all-day event on television, you know, uh, flipping around from city to city where they had these, you know, fantastic celebrations of the Declaration and, uh, you know, the Bicentennial. That, that's gone, right? That, that Bicentennial type of atmosphere is gone because the left hates the founding and the neocons have so have so in many ways bought the uh, the proposition nation myth that they're buying they're, they're essentially caving to the left right I mean the, the whole thing is going to be messed up for many Jefferson's life is nothing but a testimony to his own hypocrisy while others see Jefferson as a visionary bound to the conditions of his time the latest book from historian Thomas Kidd, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, attempts to shed light on Jefferson's puzzling philosophy and problematic past. Kidd's goal is not to write a new life story of Jefferson, but rather to illuminate and grapple with his ethical and moral universe. Now, the other thing I, I, I didn't mention, the two things where I say, you know, Jefferson as kind of a, 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 a backstabber. Um, and Hamilton said essentially that about Jefferson. The other is an event that took place with Jefferson's diary, he talked about the 1800 election, and he brought up uh, James Byard. And James Byard was one of the was the individual essentially who cast the deciding vote to give Jefferson the presidency in 1801. He's from Delaware, and Byard uh, was a pretty prominent Federalist. And like Hamilton, he didn't trust Aaron Burr, and he was trying to push aside secessionist sentiment in 1800 because it was there. And so, according to Byard. He met with a Jefferson lieutenant, and he got some concessions. Look, if I vote for Jefferson, are you going to do this, this, and this? And this individual said, no, Jefferson's not going to do that. 
And so Bayer decided to vote, essentially vote for Jefferson, to give Jefferson the presidency. He did it through some maneuvering, right? Casting blank ballots, etc. But getting people to cast blank ballots. So there was some, there was some po- politicking behind the scenes. Well, Jefferson uh, wrote about this later on and called Byard a liar. And so his sons, Richard Byard and James Byard, took to the Senate in the 18, 1850s, um, more his, his uh, James Byard, and they published long sections of testimony vindicating their father because they thought that Jefferson was being a duplicitous liar. Right? So Jefferson was lying about their father. He said he never did these things. James Byard's a liar. And the Byard sons said, no, 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 Thomas Jefferson's a liar. Here's Here's why. And they produced the documentary evidence. So we know Jefferson would lie. I mean, you could say, well, that just proves that Jefferson would lie about Sally Hemings. Yeah, it's possible he could do that. It's possible he he would lie about that. No doubt about it. And we know Jefferson would, uh, as as even this, this piece points out, Jefferson... Um, would rather you know save face than admit some of his failings. He'd rather be esteemed in public than admit some of his failings. And okay, yeah, I mean, there's lots of people like that. And so again, some of these things are possible, but to say they're reality, again, is to distort the historical record. Because of this, Kidd's biography is amazingly and mercifully succinct, at least compared to the mammoth accounts produced by other historians. Whereas political battles flame most, oh, sorry, frame most Jefferson biographies, moral tensions and intellectual conflicts dominate Kidd's telling. Using a loose chronology of Jefferson's life and times, Kidd situates uh, readers to the dilemmas and dramas defining his thought at any given time, from Christian orthodoxy to romantic pursuits of slavery. To slavery. Mapping out the main influences of on Jefferson's thoughts, such as John Locke and Algeron Sidney, on the Declaration of Independence, Montesquieu on colonization and racial separation, and the trappings of the South's honor culture, Kidd helps readers understand the makeup of Jefferson's brain on any given subject. In short, a biography of spirit and flesh is devoted to following Jefferson's intellectual and religious development, both in terms of its sources as well as its evolution in different spaces and situations. So this is an intellectual biography of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's a hard thing to do. There's a lot of stuff out there to write an intellectual biography of Thomas Jefferson. That's not an easy task, particularly a succinct or concise intellectual biography. And I think this is where I'd say Gutzman did a very good job of this because essentially that's what that book is too. It's an intellectual biography. Given Kidd's status as one of today's most popular and preeminent Christian historians, his take on Jefferson's religious profile also serves as a vital corrective to the pseudo-history produced by figures like David Barton who promote an uncomplicated synthesis between Christianity and the American founding. That is one thing. You know, David Barton is full of garbage, right? And that's the other problem with American conservatives. They listen too much to David Barton. I've already done podcasts on David Barton, but Barton's book on Thomas Jefferson uh, is, is junk. And so um, I think that you need to be very careful, if you're a Barton fan, and reading what Barton has to say about these things. Um, I... Now, again, I haven't read the Kidd book, but Galata points out some of the things Kidd says here. Granted, Kidd's Jefferson is no secularist champion, and this book rejects the easy pigeonholing of Jefferson as a mere deist. Though he was uh, surely heterodox in rejecting doctrines like the Trinity, 
He truly saw himself as a follower of Jesus and was devoted to the naturalistic vision of Christianity. And I think, I mean, that's that's a nice way to put Jefferson. Um, was he just simply a deist or did he have some influence of Christianity? I mean, he's living in a Christian society, so of course that's going to be there. And I don't think Jefferson ever outright rejected all of it, all of Christian theology. He really had a problem with organized religion, which if you go back and you look at uh, the frontier, right, the frontier cultures, these backcountry cultures, which Jefferson was also a part of that, right? He's living on the frontier of Virginia. And there were certainly people there that had suspicions of organized religion. And Jefferson fit into that mold, that cultural mold that developed on the American frontier. Suspicion of organized religion because they saw it as a vehicle for tyranny. And Jefferson, I think, could, could rightly say the same thing. So there is that part of it, right? Man-made institutions tend to create problems. And I think Jefferson always had that kind of core belief. Man-made institutions create man-made corruption, and the churches would do the exact same thing. Likewise, Kidd pushes back against the idea that the Declaration was intended as a purely secular document, and that its references to God were added later by the Continental Congress. As he highlights, nature's God was already in Jefferson's draft of the document, a reference to his belief in a creator God. Kidd is at his best when probing Jefferson's soul-searching, illustrating his doubts, and mapping his beliefs. And again, Jefferson was playing to, I think, uh, the dominant beliefs of the time, which was, it's a very Christian society. I, um, I don't think there's any question about that. These people were predominantly Christians, uh, but they did not necessarily believe, and they had seen it firsthand uh, in many cases. They didn't believe in having a state church, and that was an important thing. No church of the United States, because you had all these discordant elements in the Continental Congress, right? You had Quakers from Pennsylvania, and you had you know, Congregationalists from New England, and you had Anglicans from the South. I mean, all of this wasn't going to mix together. There couldn't be a church of the United States. So you leave the United States secular, and the states then handle those things. That's how it was designed. If one word has haunted and been hurled at Jefferson more than any other, it would be hypocrite, a word Kidd is not afraid to employ when appropriate. Naturally, Jefferson's status as an enslaver with anti-slavery sentiments is the most perplexing paradox. But as Kidd demonstrates, Jefferson was capable of a multitude of ambiguities and contradictions. For example, despite his antipathy towards many conventional forms of religious devotion, Jefferson maintained that traditional religion had its benefits for society. And I think this is something that a lot of, I mean, John Adams was the same way. Uh, ben Franklin was the same way. Uh, they certainly saw the, the effects that a religious people could have and how important that was for morality in society. And notwithstanding his disregard for the Bible's miracle accounts, Jefferson was deeply conversant with his stories and even attempted to produce his own version of the Gospels known today as the Jefferson Bible. Another area of hypocrisy was the financial realm, where Jefferson was truly duplicitous. He indulged in lavish wines, a steady supply of new books, and ambitious architecture, all while advocating the virtue of frugality to family and friends. Though he neared financial ruin on several occasions, Jefferson seemed incapable of heeding his own wisdom. Acknowledging this shortcoming, Jefferson confessed to James Monroe that, quote, I had rather be ruined in my fortune than in their esteem. So again, this could play into, well, Jefferson saying one thing to, to people, but then doing another. Behind. What is Jefferson's action? Jefferson was a man. He was a planter. And he came from a society, uh, the planter society, liked to show off their wealth. 
I mean, it was it was a badge of honor uh, if you could put a certain type of um, cap on your on your stairwells uh, to show that you were debt free. Now Jefferson was never really debt free. He borrowed a lot, and part of the reason why Jefferson was always in financial trouble is because he kept buying land. I mean, you can't you're going to buy all this land. You can't do anything with it. It just sits there, and you pay taxes on it. Well, it gets to be. And you're not you're not using it in some way. It gets to be financially burdensome to do something like that. Gulata says, but it is it is precisely his this financial recklessness that further entrenched Jefferson into slavery. Although he called slavery a moral depravity, his mounting debts and his genteel pride made escaping it improbable. Kidd compares Jefferson's attitude on slavery to a higher wire act, rightly pointing out that even by the standards of his own time, in the eyes of many of his contemporaries. His views on slavery were often strained and frequently contradictory. George Washington, who bore financial burdens of his own, took at least modest acts against slavery within his own estate. Measured against them, Jefferson's inaction appears all the more indefensible. And this, of course, is because Jefferson was a man of his time, right? And Jefferson did not understand what to do with it. He may not have liked slavery a whole lot. A lot of people didn't. But he didn't understand how to get rid of it. This is the wolf by the ears thing, right? You get rid of it. And what do you do with all these people? Do you, send them, do you send them away? Do you send them to the West? Do you send them to Africa? They can't live around us. I mean, he, he firmly believed that. They couldn't just live around them because that would be a problem as free people. Now, with slaves, you could control them. But outside of that, no. And so Jefferson was certainly a man of the South in that way. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it. Yet as Kidd chronicles, Jefferson, Jefferson's language in the Declaration was used almost instantly to denounce black bondage by figures like James Otis and Lemuel Haynes and by various anti-slavery societies. There is even evidence that Jefferson's message of liberty may have inspired Gabriel's Rebellion, a slave uprising planned for Richmond, Virginia in 1800. Nevertheless, while he could sympathize with enslaved people and who sought their freedom by any means necessary, Jefferson viewed the Haitian Revolution with horror, not as a continuation of his own revolution. And he was correct about that. The Haitian Revolution was something entirely different than what the United States went through in 1776. And the Haitian Revolution was dangerous, right? Very bloody and dangerous. No doubt accusations of hypocrisy will continue to hound Jefferson, and rightly so. After reading Kidd's biography, another epithet that comes to mind is cowardly. In another display of contradictions and tensions, the revolutionary Jefferson was mindful of his peers and cautious of unknowable outcomes. His spirit may have been willing, but his flesh was abominably weak. So again, you're getting to Jefferson in action and Jefferson as the philosopher. And there are two different things there. Jefferson showed who he was by what he did. And what we can prove that he did. Jefferson was a committed Federalist. Jefferson was... Uh, an 18th century, maybe a little more enlightened on, on issues of race, but certainly he was a racist. I mean, he was what he was. He was a man of the South. He had a large plantation. He was he believed in an in, in agrarian society, but he did, did believe in a natural aristocracy. And while he certainly was someone who favored more democracy than someone like Alexander Hamilton, even that had limits on what he was willing to accept. Gulata says, Kids Jefferson isn't a moral monster, but he's certainly no saint either. He emerges from this biography not as a confident but flawed statement, 
but a rather conflicted, uncertain, and sometimes craven worldling. Many of the issues that tormented Jefferson's mind were left unresolved, often in part through his own inaction or aversion to conflict. Abraham Lincoln may have declared all honor to Jefferson, but in the case of slavery, it would take a civil war fought by men braver than Jefferson to settle the matter once and for all. Uh, now, Jefferson, I think to say Jefferson was a coward, I think that's a little bit over the top. Um, I'll say this about Jefferson. He was governor of Virginia, had to flee his own home at one point, almost was captured. He did sign his name to the declaration, which was, uh, in, you could say, was uh, treason at the time. I mean, if you want to take that path. Um, he was no coward. Uh, was he, did he have the courage of his convictions? Well, were they really his convictions? Or were his convictions something else? Right? I mean, when he talks about Missouri, his real problem with the Missouri Compromise, for example, in slavery was that it was telling Missouri what to do. And he was concerned about the effect that abolition was going to have on the United States. He saw it as, as a troubling firebell, not slavery itself, but what people were doing about it and what they were saying about it. He, he wasn't necessarily uh, concerned about the institution as long as they could control it. And that was the issue for Jefferson. Compared to the ocean of Jefferson biographies written by figures ranging from Christopher Hitchens to John Meacham, Kidd's volume shies away from treating his subject as an exemplary leader. He admits that his take on Jefferson is more ambivalent than most, a position that will likely upset readers eager for iconoclasm or uh, hagiography. After all, as Kidd warns, the founders, including Jefferson, were hardly pristine saints but maybe we're not either. Or as Jefferson remarked to his daughter Martha, referencing Romans 3, for none of us, not no, not one, is perfect. And so, yes, I mean, I think this is a you know an important thing to say about Jefferson. Those that uh, treat Jefferson as a demigod or doing it, or, or doing the man injustice, and of course, Jefferson could be all kinds of nasty things. But I think one of the things that we have to understand about Jefferson is his commitment to federalism. If we are going to believe in that particular principle, uh, Jefferson is the man and um, as, as the intellectual leader. There were better Republicans even than Thomas Jefferson, I believe. You know, if you look at uh, some of the old Republicans, they were certainly better than Jefferson. You know, John Taylor of Caroline was more Jeffersonian than Jefferson uh, in many ways. So, uh, this is where we have to be careful with Jefferson. But I do like it that uh, this, this review was, was a decent review. Again, I quibble with some parts of the review that uh, I think you can't make these kind of statements and just let them hang out there uh, because none of that, some of these things have not been proven conclusively. But regardless, um, I know there are people that believe it and they, they will quibble with me and argue with me that, no, no, I mean, this is this is conclusive fact. I, I just, I don't see it. So regardless, uh, like the review, uh, I like that uh, Aaron Coleman uh, suggested the review, and I enjoyed reading it, and I thought I would present it to you. So I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>